His stereotype is Elizabeth's Puritan spymaster. Anyone studying the politics of the 1570s and 1580s, says today's guest, will be hard-pressed to avoid him. He was arguably responsible for the death of Mary, Queen of Scots. The he in question was Francis Walsingham. Sir Francis from 1577, Elizabeth I's principal secretary from 1573 to his death in 1590, and a privy councillor. He seemingly rose from nowhere to become one of the most important men of the Elizabethan age, possibly even the paramount man in the 1570s and 80s. Today's guest, Dr. Hannah Coates, has reappraised Walsingham's political practice, religious outlook, and role as a counsellor to the Crown. Drawing on new and underused sources, she's created a fresh, nuanced, and detailed assessment of mid-Elizabethan politics, and she shares that with us today. Dr. Hannah Coates has a PhD from the University of Leeds. Her thesis was called Sir Francis Walsingham and Mid-Elizabethan Political Culture, and these days she works as a civil servant, walking, as it were, in Walsingham's shoes. Although, as she'll tell me, there are some differences. Dr. Coates, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Now, you have written this wonderful doctoral thesis on Francis Walsingham. And the general picture we have of Francis Walsingham has been until now that he's a man passionately enthused by his Puritan faith, frankly, boldly, even rudely presenting his views to the annoyance of Elizabeth I and continually presenting a paranoid perspective of the magnitude of the threat facing the Elizabethan realm. How far is that picture from the truth? There's aspects of truth in that, but I think it is an exaggeration. Walsingham certainly was a very passionate Protestant, and that was a guiding principle of his political life. That was the thing he was most interested and most worried about. But thinking about courtiers in the Elizabethan period in general, you needed to have a strong personal relationship with the monarch, and if Elizabeth truly had really disliked Walsingham every day, day in, day out, he wouldn't have been as demonstrably influential as he was. So he was clearly also a very capable and shrewd political operator. And I think he presented himself as tactless and blunt, but often that was a sort of rhetorical strategy. He described his advice to Elizabeth as rude and plain. So he was very self-conscious about his tactless advice. And of course, the question that throws up is, if he knew he was being tactless, why didn't he change his style? And he probably didn't because it told Elizabeth or he was trying to portray to Elizabeth a particular persona of someone that wasn't interested in flattering her, that just wanted to tell her the truth. That's the vision that he wanted to create. And I think it's a testament to the strength of his skill in persuasion and presenting himself. That's been convincing to to scholars as well as people at the time, although not always. So certainly a fraught relationship, but broadly speaking, very positive, strong, trusting relationship. They worked together for nearly 20 years. What do we know about his early life? We know very little about Walsingham's early life. When he entered royal service officially in the early 1570s, he was probably in his 40s. So we've got this kind of long period before that. We don't know much about him at all. He was probably born in about 1530, 1532. The Walsinghams were one of these mercantile families from the city of London who'd made the journey into country gentry in Kent and Walsingham's uncles Anthony Denny and Edmund Walsingham were intimates Henry VIII so they had these strong court ties. We know that Walsingham as a young man spent time at Cambridge at King's College 
We know that he then went to Gray's Inn, one of the inns of court, where you could pick up the rudiments of law or you could use it as a kind of social club to meet people and get to know London. And we know that he travelled abroad, certainly during the reign of Mary, where his religion didn't exactly fit the picture, and possibly for a short stint before that as well. On his return to England on Elizabeth's accession, he seems to have had quite a quick rise through the ranks. It's very obscure, there's very few sources relating to his life before the 1560s. It's very frustrating to research as a scholar. So you mentioned that he wasn't in England during Mary I's reign. Do we know where he was and why do you think he was there? We know that he spent time in Basel in Switzerland. We know that he spent time in Padua in Italy, uh, so very different vibes. He registered as a student at the universities in both places and Padua as a student of civil law. We know that in Basel he was with some of his cousins. He had teenage cousins with him, so he may have been acting as a kind of chaperone for them. But we don't know when he left England, who with, why, when, and exactly when he came back. Very difficult to identify exactly what he was doing, why he was doing it. But yeah, Switzerland and Italy, the two key places where we can place him with absolute certainty. And when does he first arise in Elizabethan political life? There's a few early references in the 1560s in the correspondence of people who are already in royal service, particularly people associated with Scottish diplomacy, like Thomas Randolph. And then the really key year is 1568. There's the first letters in the state papers from Walsingham to William Cecil, one of Elizabeth's Privy Council, about intelligence work that he was doing in London, working with an Italian Protestant refugee in London who had intelligence about Catholic plots in Europe. And Walsingham's passing those on to Cecil. And it's those letters in 1568 that are the first signal that Walsingham is on the scene working for Cecil. He'd previously done some work for Nicholas Throckmorton, one of Elizabeth's ambassadors, and he's moving from Throckmorton to Cecil, kind of closer to the court, closer to the upper echelons of those in the Queen's Trust in terms of his masters. And those letters in 1568 contain some of the guiding principles of Walsingham's political career, including there's nothing more dangerous than security, he writes in one letter, so he means complacency, don't be too complacent, you have to constantly be on your guard. So there is a flavour of paranoia. 1568 is the key year, I think. Shortly after that, he was involved in some more intelligence work with an Italian flavour, interrogating the Italian banker Roberto Rodolfi about his alleged plots against the Queen. Again, working closely with Cecil and the Earl of Leicester. And then from then on, it was diplomatic service, Privy Council, top table. Let's just take a tangent to talk about his personal life, because I think it's just so easy to miss that out of the story. But can you tell me about his marriages and the role particularly of his second wife, as far as we can discern it? Yeah, so one of the really frustrating things about studying Walsingham is that there are very few papers relating to his private life. We've got tons and tons of public documents in the state papers and British Library and elsewhere very little about his private life. He was married twice. He married his first wife, who was a member of one of the powerful City of London families, Anne Barn. She was a widow in the early 1560s. She had two children by previous marriage, and Walsingham continued to take an interest in their lives and fortunes for the rest of his life. Although they had no children of their own, they were only married for two years. And then a couple of years later, he remarried another wealthy widow, this time Ursula St. Barb, who was the widow of the captain of the Isle of Wight, associated with the Southwest. She was originally from Somerset, ended up on the outskirts of London, and they were married in 1566, and she survived Walsingham State, that was the kind of lasting marriage, and they had two daughters who went on to make a series of glittering, is the word often used, marriages of her own, and Mary, who died as a child. There are references in correspondence to her death and how he felt about it, but they're very fleeting in those sort of public documents. And Ursula, I think, is really interesting, very difficult to uncover her role in his life and the sort of patronage networks around him without those private documents. We don't have any letters that he wrote directly to Ursula ever. 
presumably was writing frequently to her, but there are hints here and there that she was popular with his friends when Walton was abroad on diplomatic embassies or ill, or there are other kind of fraught moments. His friends at court would often write to Ursula and comfort and make sure she was all right. She was related to the Earl of Leicester, I think, so there was a kind of familial connection there. And yeah, I imagine that people often applied to her for help with Walsingham and getting favour from the Queen or favours that he was able to dispense directly, but it's very hard to evidence. There is one really early letter in Surrey archives from Walsingham to a friend asking for help in his courtship of Ursula, which is written in a much tidier hand than his later letters. So that was a very different side to him, trying to get some help in uh, securing Ursula's hand in marriage. And on Walsingham's death, in his will, he refers to Ursula twice as his well-beloved wife. It's a formal document, but probably a close marriage. She was interested in reform. Several religious books were dedicated to her. So there's hints here and there that she was influential as a well-known patron, able to get people's help with Walsingham. I don't know if you know whether she went with him to France, but we do know that in 1570 he was sent as a special envoy to France and he's there for three years I think. What did he see? What did he learn from that experience? She did certainly visit him in Paris. He was sent to Paris originally as you say a special envoy by Elizabeth which sort of comes out of nowhere. He's not had any as far as we know any previous diplomatic experience and suddenly he's been sent on this special embassy and then while he's there Elizabeth decides to make him her resident ambassador, so he ends up staying in Paris from 1570 to early 1573, and Ursula does go out to visit him on occasion. And she is with him in Paris when probably the sort of formative experience of that embassy occurs, the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day in August 1572, where the marriage of a Catholic princess and a Protestant prince led to extreme violence on the streets of Paris and elsewhere, where Huguenots were being lynched. Hugely unruly, very scary to be in the middle of that as an English Protestant, as the representative in Paris of English Protestant power. But we know that he used the embassy building to shelter other Protestants. Some French Protestants were able to gather there, and English Protestants in Paris made their way to the embassy to seek shelter amongst the chaos that was raging around them. And some German and Italian Protestants ended up there too, and there are references in letters in later years to some of these people to Walsingham passing on information or corresponding with him and they refer to the sanctuary that he gave them during the massacre to know that he was sheltering Protestants. You can speculate that it had quite a profound effect on him. We know that before the massacre, Walsingham's big job during his embassy was to negotiate a marriage between Elizabeth and one of the French princes. And before the massacre, Walsingham's letters express a lot of reservations about the idea of Elizabeth marrying this Catholic French prince. But he accepts that England is in such a sort of lonely position internationally that it really needs this alliance and she has to do it for sort of national security reasons. He explicitly puts secular interests above religious ones so it doesn't matter that it's a mixed religious marriage we really need this and then after the massacre that for him having been precipitated by this mixing of religions really confirms to him that you mustn't put anything above religion that it's really important that you don't upset god because if you do it will have dire consequences for protestantism where you are internationally so it does have quite an impact on the way he views the international situation but he doesn't talk about it directly. There's a reference later on in one of his policy papers arguing for the course of action where he describes it as a horrible spectacle, and he says he himself as an eyewitness, but he doesn't talk about it a lot in the surviving sources, so it's very difficult to know exactly what he did, but we can guess how it felt, I think. I guess one should assume it was an experience so traumatic 
that he didn't want to talk about it much in the same way as we know that survivors of world wars and holocaust and things took years and years to start to disclose their experience yeah possibly certainly it was a big shock to him the atmosphere in paris leading up to this marriage had been quite febrile i think is probably the appropriate word but he hadn't expected this at all and then to have this sort of horrendous experience must have marked him quite deeply i think later on even if it's not something that he discusses in his surviving correspondence Now, his service in France must have been exemplary because when he returns in 1573, he's made Elizabeth's principal secretary and he retains that role till he dies, 17 years. He's also a privy councillor, so directly advising and attending daily upon the Queen. And he never lost her trust, you say. So, you know, it would be nice to be able to consider Walsingham as a councillor, but you've alluded a couple of times to the problem of sources. And here we have a problem of sources in that many of their interactions would have been verbal. What sources do we have? Fortunately, in some ways, Elizabeth occasionally sent Walsingham on diplomatic embassies. After he returned as resident ambassador, as you say, he was a privy councillor and principal secretary. In 1578, she sent him to the Low Countries. And then in 1581, he was sent back to Paris, which he can't have been super enthused about. Again, for marriage negotiations or treaty with France. And then in 1583, she sent him to Scotland. He was also frequently ill and away from court, but working from his sickbed. So while he's away from court, either sick or on these embassies, he does correspond with Elizabeth and his colleagues. So you can see some aspects of the relationship in writing, even though it would be different if he'd been in front of her. But given that those letters stand in for his physical presence with her, he would have considered what he wrote and how he wrote it very carefully. You can tell a lot about how he saw Elizabeth and how he saw his role from reading those letters. But yeah, fortunately for us, he was often ill, less so for himself, and often abroad. So that creates a peer into the relationship as a sort of snapshot. He obviously talked about Elizabeth with his colleagues. He talked about what it was like to advise her and when he was annoyed with her. They shared their frustrations quite openly with each other. And he also wrote various correspondence with lots of others. And he also wrote policy papers to argue for particular courses of political action. So again, you get this kind of snapshots of exactly how he was thinking or feeling at particular times. So what can we learn about the nature of that relationship? Walsingham's approach to advice has been characterised, as I said earlier, as frank, you know, very little sugar coating. He even calls himself rude and plain. Is that true? And what do you make of his character, really? He's got a very self-conscious style of writing to the Queen, where he does present himself as giving her this very bold, frank, unsugar-coated advice. That is a very specific persuasive choice. He wants to portray himself and be seen as, and I think he saw himself as, however accurately we may disagree with him, as someone who put the interests of God, Queen and country first and wasn't carried away by sort of private passions or his own interests. By presenting his advice in this very straightforward manner, that's part of his argument that he is an honest, good advisor to the Queen and he's not interested in flattering her. He just needs her to know the truth unvarnished. And I think Elizabeth is a very equal partner in the process of counsel. She'd had a very similar education to Walsingham. She knew what was expected of her as a monarch. She knew she was expected to listen to counsel, although she had very different ideas about whether or not she was expected to act on it and whether or not she should ask for it before her advisors gave it. So there were differences. But when Elizabeth listened to Walsingham's advice, she could hear those persuasive techniques. She knew when he said, I'm so sorry for being rude and plain and carried away by my zeal to be too frank with you. He was probably hiding something. And that was part of his effort to persuade her to make her feel that his advice was the most truly beneficial for her and the realm. So she's able to engage with it on that level, whereas I think historians have been distracted by the fact that there's very little sugarcoating in these letters. 
by the time Walsingham arrives on the scene, Elizabeth is a very sort of settled ruler. She's got her ways of ruling. She knows how to manage her council. He arrives in a very developed, settled way of doing things. And he seems to adapt to that quite quickly, quite easily. He's not always happy about the way she does things. But he certainly accepts Elizabeth's primacy in the choice of policy, in decision making. He occasionally tries to bounce her into making a particular decision by concealing information or amping up aspects of the information that he receives. But that in itself testifies to the fact that he saw her as the key person to influence. He doesn't seem to have been particularly bothered about the fact that she was a woman. Occasionally he complains about her irresolution and reluctance to spend money. But I think anyone looking at Elizabeth's reign and her decision making might agree with him occasionally that those were real flaws, not necessarily without grounds. And not necessarily gendered flaws. <laughs> no, I don't think that was something that bothered him. I think he saw probably the kind of office of monarch as something that was basically masculine, but that a woman could do it if she had sort of masculine coded qualities, like listening to reason provided by her excellent advisors, obviously, and that kind of thing. So I don't think he was that bothered about advising a woman. And I think the fact that he just continues to advise Elizabeth in this way, this very self-consciously frank way throughout his career, and... As it develops, there are hints of this sort of warmer personal relationship under the surface. So in 1581, when he's in France, he's really annoyed Elizabeth because she knows that he's opposed to her marriage to the Duke of Anjou. They've had this sort of misunderstanding and they're trying to sort it out through their letters. And one of the ways that he does that is by asserting that, yes, he's advised her very frankly, but it's because he's thinking of this sort of greater good. But he also talks about the love that he bears her personally. And he talks about his nickname that the Queen gave him to excuse the fact that he's been so direct with her. I think he saw himself as a political expert, very well qualified to give the Queen advice, whether she'd asked for it or not, on just about any topic under the sun. And that things would go a lot better if she just did what he recommended. But there are hints of a bit of humour, again, testing that humorless Puritan caricature. I think a little bit of a sardonic sense of humour, which I think he shared with Elizabeth. And some warmth as well, some personal warmth that, again, is quite lacking given the lack of personal correspondence, but it does bleed through into these letters. One of the lines you quoted earlier about him sort of not giving into his private passions, I was struck by the fact that he refers to himself, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, as serving my prince and he will do whatever she says. And, you know, it's quite interesting to see prince being used as a sort of non-gender specific term to talk about his queen. Yeah, I think in some ways he had quite an autocratic conception of political power. He often sought to do things outside the rules on his own authority. There was an occasion where he asked an underling to do something and they had to write back and tell him they couldn't because it required the authorisation of the Privy Council. He just wanted to cut through all that kind of red tape and bureaucracy, just get it done. So I think he had quite an autocratic conception of his authority as a minister of the Queen. So therefore of hers, that she'd been anointed by God to rule, and therefore she ought to behave in a certain way. That came with responsibilities. She ought to assist Protestants on the continent. She ought to further the gospel at home. But that, and you know, he could try and bounce her into making those decisions. But ultimately, she was the one who had to be accountable to God for what she did. And he said that to her on a number of occasions. I've given you my advice. If you don't follow it, it'll be you that use the consequences, basically. So yeah, he didn't always like obeying her, but he did. And I think that was part of it as well, that she knew that no matter how strongly he argued against her and how annoyed he was about it and with what bad grace he did it, he would do what he was told in the end. You've mentioned that she gave him a nickname. I mean, Lester's called Eyes and Raleigh's called Water. And Walsingham's is a racialised metaphor. What do you think we should make of it? 
Historians have generally said that Walsingham is the Queen's moor because Walsingham is dark coloured himself. But I think it's more likely that this is to do with late 16th century ideas about who the Moors were and what that meant, sort of cultural significance in England of Moorishness and the Moors and sort of others. And I think it's a gesture to Walsingham's Hispanophobia. He didn't like the Spanish and the Moors had been expelled from Spain by the Catholic Spanish monarchs. I think that's part of it. Moors and their skin colour are part of a Bible verse. The bit that we know is the bit about the leopard can't change its spots, but the bit before that is about the Moor not being able to change their skin colour. So there's something there, I think, about perceptions of people from different races in the late 16th century and mapping that onto people's character. There's a sense that Walsingham is fundamentally quite unchanging and he won't adapt in the same way that uh, the can't change his spots. So he does have quite a kind of consistent policy programme for most of his career. It's, it's very much the same as it is at the beginning of his career as it is at the end. His nickname stands out, I think, a bit among the others that the Queen gives. You've got eyes, spirit. It is quite different. It's not as intimate in a bodily sense as being the Queen's eyes, but it's still the fact that she gave him this nickname is certainly suggestive of intimacy and closeness to her. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. talk a bit about his policies then. We're told that he wanted to align the interests of England with those of international Protestantism. Is that the case? And were there religious or political differences between him and his queen? Yeah, I think he certainly did want to align England's interests and actions, importantly, with those of other Protestant 
populations in France, the Netherlands especially, also Presbyterians in Scotland who are not always in a great position during the reign of James. And part of that is just his own personal piety, I think. He was just very invested personally in quite aggressive on Protestantism. He's himself quite a passionate person. He talks about that occasionally as well. He talks about himself as choleric and somewhat ironically, given the way he advises the Queen, says that he's not passionate at all and he's very straightforward and focused on the common good. So I think that's part of it. And I also think part of it is the fact that he had travelled abroad. He had been to Switzerland. He had been in Paris during the massacre of Bartholomew's Day. So foreign populations of Protestants are not that foreign to him. He's seen what it's like. They're real people. He's met them. He corresponds with a lot of them, even as a privy councillor. So he feels a real personal and emotive connection to them as fellow Protestants. He talks about them as being members of the same body. He talks about them as being in the same ship together, needing to work together in this time of storm and tempest. So he sees a very strong case for Protestant unity in the face of Spanish and papal and sometimes French aggression. In terms of his differences with Elizabeth, he's definitely a much more aggressive Protestant than Elizabeth. He's much further along the reformed spectrum but he's actually quite careful to not let that bleed into his advice to her too much. He can't avoid some of it. Some of it just naturally flows through. But there's an occasion in 1575 where he's asked to appeal to the Queen for a Puritan divine who's in trouble with her. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry, because she already thinks that I favour those who are called Puritans and I'm not going to get involved. So he's very clear that that's not something that Elizabeth likes. She doesn't like the idea of him having these sort of more extreme tendencies and he has to manage those very carefully with her. But he also recognises the importance of proceeding quite gradually with the process of further reformation. He's not entirely happy with the Elizabethan religious settlement, but he sees it as a really good, solid foundation for future progress. So he is very carefully managing the activities of even more extreme Protestants that might threaten that, and trying to keep them within the fold, keep them on side, so that you don't get these kind of noisy ruptures among the faithful that might draw the Queen's attention. So definitely differences, but it's something that he's very aware of and very self-consciously tries to manage in their relationship. But it nonetheless is the insult of choice that Elizabeth allegedly reached for when he had attracted her irritation or anger. At the heart of Walsingham's understanding of security for England seems to have been the relationship with Scotland. What did he think that Elizabethan Scottish policy should be? And how do we explain his own interventions in Scottish politics? Yeah, all good questions. One of the questions I would ask him if he were here is what he thought he was doing. But Scotland is a big preoccupation of Walsingham throughout his career, even as ambassador in Paris. Before he's Privy Councillor, he corresponds with the regents ruling Scotland on behalf of the infant James VI. He is very worried about what Mary Stuart is up to in Scotland. And once she arrives in England, he's very famous for being one of her most implacable enemies in England. So Scotland looms very large in his political thinking, and as a Privy Councillor, he continues those relationships with the regents and people who had opposed Mary's rule in Scotland, the so-called King's Party, so they were considered to be more aligned to English interests, more Protestant. But I think Walsingham consistently overestimated the extent to which they aligned themselves with English interests. As proud Scots, they didn't necessarily see interests aligning in the way that he did. He couldn't quite grasp that and found that very confusing, that they might think differently about what was best for Scotland because they were all Protestants and they all wanted the same things ultimately. He just couldn't grasp the slightly different national context. He was an embassy to Scotland in 1583, which went really badly, partly for that reason. He had a terrible, very tactless, but again, self-consciously, I think, trying to model ideas of sort of good frank advice 
to James, which did nothing to improve relations between England and Scotland. He justified his interventions on the grounds of shared interests, that they were both Protestant polities sharing the same island. There was obviously the uh, reversionary succession interest of the Stuarts in the English succession, although that was something he was very careful to avoid getting drawn into too much. And it's something he was aware of, and he sometimes accused people who argued for a different Scottish policy of thinking too much about where James was in relation to the English throne, which I suggest he was thinking about it quite a bit himself. So broadly, his Scottish policy was about supporting the interests of those whose interests most aligned with those of England, even though there was this divergence. He was very worried about James's efforts to constrain the independence of the Scottish Kirk, which was more reformed than the English version. He was very worried about James's ties to France. He wanted whoever was in control in Scotland, whether it was the regents or later James, to be solidly and genuinely pro-English interest, basically, to agree that they needed an alliance, to agree they needed to work together to defend the island against foreign invasion. Uh, that was the way to attack Protestantism in the British Isles and strengthen it internationally as well, because if it failed in the British Isles, then England wouldn't be able to assist Protestants abroad. He justified it on the grounds of shared interests, and he saw himself as a watchman over a sort of piece of his house, being England or British Isles more generally. So he saw himself as having a responsibility directly from God, potentially, mediated through his appointment as one of the councillors, to intervene in this way and give honest advice to England Scotland. It's a really strong interest right the way through his career. Would it be generally true to say that he was interventionist? We've talked about his faith and, you know, we're thinking about the Low Countries, for example, and we've got the sense that Elizabeth doesn't go to war easily, but Walsingham is somebody who is urging her to do so. So can we think that, generally speaking, we should consider him a bit gung-ho, I suppose? Yeah, I think gung-ho is a really good way of describing Walsingham. He's not completely divorced from reality. He is very aware of the expense of war. He understands that Elizabeth is reluctant to spend her money and the blood of her soldiers in these ventures, but he sees it, particularly interventionally in the Low Countries, as absolutely essential to English security. Because while the Spanish are tied down fighting the Dutch, the Spanish can't invade England. He describes, I think it's the Huguenots as well, but certainly the Dutch as those who have, with the shedding of their blood, procured Elizabeth's safety. So he feels this very visceral responsibility that people who are fighting and dying and benefiting England in the process ought to receive some sort of support from England, not just in sort of God's glory, but also out of you know, personal obligation almost. And he's not blind to the faults of the Protestants abroad, although he does make strenuous efforts to excuse them to Elizabeth. But there's an occasion where he's trying to persuade some of the Protestant princes of various denominations to join a sort of league of mutual defence. Walsingham's very frustrated that they haven't proved very receptive to this. He says, we can't expect Elizabeth to keep persevering in this if they're not going to respond. I can understand why she's not keen to have another go round at this because it didn't work out the last time. So he's not blind to their faults, but he feels this very strong personal sense of sort of mission, I suppose, that England ought to be intervening in these foreign conflicts. And that is one of the main causes of disagreement with the Queen. It's very different views about what England's role in these situations should be. Walsingham's come to be known as Elizabeth's spymaster. What does it mean given that we know that Burley, as he is by this point, had his own network of intelligence agents as well. So is it a fair title to give Walsingham? I think in some ways you're absolutely right that other members of the Privy Council did have their own intelligence networks. Walsingham was very much not the only one. 
I think his was probably more extensive. This is not something that I'm personally an expert in, but it does seem to have been more extensive and he does seem to have spent quite a lot of his personal money on it. Again, there's the flavour of paranoia. He's so worried about what Spain and France and the Pope are up to in Scotland and the Queen of Scots that he feels it imperative to expand this approach to get more secret information. And it's not just spies. He also uses merchants, English merchants based in foreign ports, as I've said, some of the people he sheltered during the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre continue to send him news. So he's got this broad network of contacts across Europe that send him news, verifiable or otherwise. So it's not just spies. He does have this intelligence network in the sense that it is information and tidbits that you can put together and draw conclusions about what other people's motivations and actions might be. So I think in some ways it is a fair title, although it does detract attention from the other things that he did, from the diplomacy, from his day-to-day advising the Queen. And when thinking about Colonel Walsingham is remembered or perceived, I think one of the key factors is that he doesn't seem to have made many efforts to influence his legacy. He didn't leave money for almshouses, he didn't leave money for a funeral, he didn't leave money for a headstone. He was buried in St Paul's Cathedral, apparently at night very soon after he died, in case creditors, uh, a lot of people, a lot of money, pounded the body. So he doesn't seem to be particularly interested in how he was perceived after his death. He was so focused on policy priorities while he was alive, he just didn't seem to have been that bothered. Whereas people like Burley thought very consciously about how they wanted to be perceived and what their sort of legacy was going to be. And I wonder if once you've taken that into account, what's left is, oh, Walsingham's a spymaster, that's the kind of pigeonhole he gets slotted into. And it does make for good historical fiction. So I think that plays a role as well. I think the, the Jeffrey Rushes play a role in, in that perception as well. At the time, he was known for having an extensive intelligence network, which he most famously used to down the American Scots. So not necessarily an unfair title to be given, but certainly doesn't represent the sort of breadth of his interests or activities. So I wanted to ask you, do you think we should hold Walsingham responsible ultimately for the entrapment and trial and execution of Mary Queen of Scots? And if so, how did he manage to avoid censure by either Elizabeth or James VI? I think Walsingham does play a very significant part in the end of Mary Queen of Scots. It was a sort of career-long goal to bring her to book one way or another, to constrain her activities one way or another. And at various points, he acknowledges the fact that the only real way to do that is for her to die, basically. He doesn't believe there's any way she can be persuaded to just kind of stop or even if she was, she would still act as a beacon, a magnet for other people with their own agendas. So the safest thing to do is just to get rid of her. And the trick with the barrels while she's imprisoned is very sneaky. And I think it is probably entrapment in a, I'm not sure what the legal definition is, certainly not entirely above board. Mary at her trial charged him with practicing against her and I think accused him of forging material against her. I personally think that he probably didn't forge anything apart from the dodgy postscript on the final letter. That's clearly suspect. But the whole process by restricting her correspondence and then offering her this outlet certainly drew her into making unwise moves. So yeah, he's very clearly involved very heavily. But as that kind of process works itself out, as the Privy Council are working to persuade Elizabeth to agree to Mary's execution, other people come forward to take the stage. So Burley is very involved in the organisation around that. He's a logistics man, although it's Walsingham that organises for the executioner. Certainly when the council comes out of its own authority to end off Mary's death warrant that Elizabeth signed, even though she's apparently asked for it not to go anywhere, Walsingham's sick at home. So he signs it, but he's not leading the charge. So I think that partly explains maybe why he got away with it a bit with Elizabeth after the fact. 
he wasn't the one that organised that. I think also one of the things that must have been a bit of a shock to Elizabeth once she realised her council had organised to send the warrant off without her say-so was that they disobeyed her. These men that she really trusted had done something that she'd explicitly asked not to be done. And that sense of very strong personal betrayal must have been part of it. But I don't think she'd have been surprised that Walsingham, who had made no secret of what he wanted to happen to the Queen of Scots, had been involved. So there's not such a gap between what she thought might happen and what did happen, I think, for Walsingham. She is annoyed with him. He's not allowed to come into her presence. And he complains in a letter to in a letter to one of his correspondents that she gives out hard speeches of him behind his back. And if someone else could do what he could do, then she'd let them do it. He wouldn't be allowed back at court. So he doesn't entirely get away with it, but he gets off very lightly compared to Burley, I think, in the aftermath of the execution. And then with James, I think it's probably more expediency. It's in the late 1580s, and of James's key correspondents in England have been the Earl of Leicester. In the later 1580s, he passes away. James is in need of friends at the English court. Walsingham is apparently willing to provide favour at the English court for a price, which is you know, upsetting Elizabeth and making himself amenable to English interests in Scotland. So I think that's part of it. It's kind of a transactional thing. Before we draw to a close, you suggest that to understand Walsingham and his actions, we have to realise that he thought he was living through a time of crisis. How did that direct his thinking and his behaviour? Essential to understanding why he did what he did and in the way that he did it. Everything for Walsingham comes down ultimately to what's necessary and to what is expedient in the service of Protestantism, Elizabeth and England. And that was how he made his political calculations. That there's not a lot of room for anything else. It's very needs driven. And that was how he argued his case. It's necessary for you to do these things because of all the terrible things happening around you because the kings of France and Spain are your enemies, because the Pope's plotting against you, because you've got Jesuits at home, because of the Queen of Scots, because of Ireland, all these kind of things. And I think also that sense of crisis, that sense of everything going wrong and being against England, England being sort of alone against the darkness, is one of the reasons why he's so frank with Elizabeth, why he has this very sort of plain style. He's urging her to act in a particular way. He sees it really urgent, that the urgency comes across very strongly. So there isn't time to flatter her, there isn't time to sugarcoat it. He has to just tell her. And I think that's one of the things that also, in his own mind, allows him to occasionally play those tricks where he tries to manipulate her into making a decision because it's so important that she decides right that it's all right for him to hide this information from her. It's all right for him not to tell her about this or to lay up this other aspect of the situation. So I think it yeah influences kind of every aspect of his actions. And it's clearly something he felt very genuinely. It's not entirely a sort of rhetorical trick or a posture. It's clearly his sort of stress about that and fear about what might happen if Elizabeth doesn't act in the right way. It comes across very strongly in a lot of his correspondence. It really comes out to every aspect of his conduct as a counsellor, I think. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to this podcast. It's been really wonderful to hear from you and to learn from all of your expertise. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher Alice Smith and my producer Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts, so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.